Good evening, everybody. It's good to have you here. Brother Walker's got a handout that he has agreed to pass around, and I hope we have enough, at least for couples, to share. How many has been enjoying reading through First and Second Corinthians? First and Second Corinthians are uh, really neat letters. They're some of the longest letters in the New Testament, and uh, we have more correspondence uh, from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church than we do any other church. And so we really get a glimpse into the life of that church and what their world was like. And I want us to kind of step into that world tonight, and I want us to take a look at 1 Corinthians. And the first thing I want to do is I want to look at the book of 1 Corinthians as a whole. I want to kind of present an outline of what it looks like and what the themes are and what some of the issues are that are dealt with in the whole letter. And then uh, secondly... I want to take some time and I want to look at a particular set of scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that really sets the tone for the entire letter and helps us understand the whole thing. Have you ever found yourself kind of sucked into the world's way of thinking? You just spend so much time and you hear so many voices and, and you, just, you don't really do it intentionally, but you just find yourself, you just pulled into the way that the world views things and and the, the opinions and the preferences and, and the way that the world lives, it's something we constantly have to push back against, isn't it? It's something I have to constantly push against because we live in the world where there's just a lot of voices and a lot of noise and a lot of influences, and we just have to make a conscious effort to live for God and to not live according to the ways of the world. And that's one of the things that the church in Corinth really had to deal with day in and day out. The city of Corinth was a, a pretty spectacularly wicked place. Uh, there was a lot of worldly customs and practices that they had. They, in Corinth, they even had so much wickedness going on that they gained a reputation. And to be from Corinth and to be a Corinthian was to be associated with some of the sinful things that they did. It was that prevalent. It, it, it really had a sway over the city and over the culture of the city and what people interacted with. And Paul was facing a city in Corinth where there was philosophy and there were attitudes and there was the world's way of doing things uh, that were very, very influential. And if that weren't enough, the a lot of the teachers back then that were uh, in the pagan temples and in the halls of government, they were trained in the art of rhetoric. They were very skilled speakers, and they were able to present their ideas in a very eloquent way, in a very persuasive way. They were trained in these arts. And so it wasn't just that they were getting hammered with these ideas, but they were being presented in a very attractive format. I think that even though we probably don't have many people in our world that are trained in the classical art of rhetoric, there's a lot of media that is very, very influential, amen? I mean, media that is presenting the message of the world, but it's very well put together, it's very polished, it's very easy to watch, it's very easy to consume, and it's very persuasive because it looks polished and it looks professional and and so we face some of the very same things that the Corinthian church did. The issues that you'll find in the, in the letter of 1 Corinthians are worldly wisdom, 
they had factions and cliques emerging in the church. There was, uh, there was a culture of sexual permissiveness that was immoral. There was paganism and idol worship and the issues associated with that. They had a very wide range of maturity levels in the church. There were people that were brand new in the church. There were people that were more mature in the church, and they didn't always interact well. And so that's one of the issues that shows up in 1 Corinthians. They had a lot of questions and a lot of chaos and confusion about spiritual gifts and things regarding supernatural spiritual gifts even because some of those weren't fully understood and they were being abused and misused by people that were seek, wanting to gain influence in the church. And there's a word, there's a phrase that shows up in 1 Corinthians over and over again. It's the phrase puffed up. I don't know what it says in the King James Version, but, but it's puffed up and it mean, it's talking about pride. It shows up at least six times in the letter. And so that's kind of the root issue of all of it is that people's self is getting in the way. And if we were to look at all the issues that plague our world today and maybe even start pointing out some things in the church, we'd probably go down the line and find that it has a lot to do with self. It has a lot to do with not being uh, surrendered to God fully. And that if we can get back to surrendering to God, if we can get back to completely living for Him, a lot of the issues we deal with will resolve themselves. I want to give you an overview of uh, 1 Corinthians. And uh, what's on the handout is going to be reflected up here on the board. Uh, now watch this. Check this out. Huh? There we go. There we go. Um, so this is the rough format. You, you'll see there's a bunch of different options for, uh, for laying out in different resources, and you'll find a hundred different ways that people have chopped up this letter and said this, this section and this section and this section. This is the easiest one I've, I've found, and uh, I'm going to talk about it for a minute. Paul, now this is neat. We have two letters in the Bible to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but if you'll do a detailed search of what some of the things that Paul says in these letters, Paul wrote at least four letters to the church at Corinth, because there's a couple times where he references a previous letter that we don't have. We don't have that letter, but we do have two of them, and we call them 1 and 2 Corinthians. There was a lot of correspondence that went back and forth between Paul and these churches, there was a lot of letters that circulated around to different churches that we just don't have in our Bible today because the Holy Ghost chose that we needed the ones that we do have. 1 Corinthians is laid out like this. The first nine verses, it's customarily uh, the way that Paul opens up a letter. He has some opening remarks. He gives some greetings to particular people, and that's what he does uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at the beginning. Uh, then he, he goes into four sections. There's four sections here to the letter. And in each case, he's dealing with a different kind of chaos that's present in the church. And he's giving them, he's not just addressing it, but he's helping them resolve it. He's trying to give them particular instruction about what to do to resolve whatever chaos there happens to be. And we'll get into a little bit of that here in just a moment. But it's, it's wild to me, uh, the Corinth church is like Paul's problem child. Because he writes two letters to them, and somehow they manage to misunderstand and misapply almost everything that he tells them to do. Almost everything he instructs them to do, they manage to twist it, to contort it, to misapply it, to misunderstand it, to take it too far, or to not take it seriously enough. And so Paul has to just go round and round with them and has to get very, very detailed in some matters. The first thing that he deals with is 
what you could call ecclesiological chaos. It's when you read the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians, it's whenever they're saying, uh, well, I'm, I belong to Paul, and I belong to Apollos, and I belong uh, to Cephas, who is Peter, and I belong to Christ. They were breaking up into cliques, and they were gravitating towards certain leaders because they preferred their personality. They preferred their style of ministry, their style of leadership, and it was turning into a little bit of a cult of personality type situation. And it wasn't healthy at all, and Paul had to address it, and it had to do with the ecclesiology, the leadership, uh, the structure of the church, and it was becoming poisonous and toxic, and Paul had to address it. It was becoming chaotic, and the way that Paul uh, addressed it is the same way that he addresses all the issues in 1 Corinthians, and this is what's really neat. This is what unifies the letter. In all four of these cases where Paul starts to address a different kind of chaos in the church... He always deals with it by bringing up the cross. He always deals with it by going back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He always says, wait a second, I know there's chaos in this area, but let's go back to the gospel. Let's look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's look at the cross, and let's recenter ourselves and start to deal with this chaos and get it resolved so that the kingdom can roll on. That's a pretty good model. It shouldn't surprise us that that's what the Apostle Paul does. Uh, so when he starts to deal with these cliques that are emerging in the church, what's Paul do? He, ta- he talks to them about the wisdom and power of the cross. The wisdom and power of the cross. That's in chapter 1, and I'm going to go back to that in a minute because that's the passage I want to address in a moment. Uh, But he goes to the literal event of the cross, the word of the cross, the message of the cross. And and, and basically what he says is, you know what? I know you're gravitating towards this person or this person or this person because you like their personality or you like their style or whatever the case may be. But he goes back to the cross and says, listen, it wasn't my cross. It wasn't your blood. We need to get back to the thing that really matters the most because this isn't about human personality. It's about Jesus. And so that's how he resolves that. Then in the next section of the letter, he starts to address moral chaos. And moral chaos, there's a couple different things that are going on. And if you've been reading through the book of 1 Corinthians, you've already encountered some of the particulars of that. And again, Paul addresses it by invoking the cross. He takes them back to the cross. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, He says, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So there at the very beginning, verse 7 of chapter 5, before he ever starts to get into the particulars of what he's fixing to tell him, he says, on the authority of the cross, I'm getting ready to give you some instruction about some of the issues, the moral issues that are present in the church. In chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 is the passage where Paul says, God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. He's saying we belong to, we are the body of Christ, that body that was crucified on the cross. We are that body, the church. And that body, that blood that was shed, it's so precious, we can't join ourselves to these wicked, immoral things. He's taking them back to the cross, just like he does in the first section. He does that in the second section. Then in the third, he starts to address worship chaos. And it's kind of a broad topic uh, because there's multiple things that he starts to deal with in this section. A couple of them are, um, he deals with communion. 
the Lord's Supper. He deals with spiritual gifts in operation in the church. Uh, and, and it's a whole section of letter. It's the biggest section of the letter uh, that's represented on this board. And there's multiple issues that Paul starts to address. And there's chaos in these categories. What's happening when they gather for the Lord's Supper? When they did the communion, when they took the Lord's Supper, they actually, it was a, it was a meal. It was an actual meal meal. And they would come together and there was chaos happening. There was people being left out and you can read about it yourself and there's details there. But there was chaos and he had to set it in order. Whenever there was exercise of spiritual gifts, and there were supernatural spiritual gifts being exercised in settings like this, there was chaos taking place. And, and one of the famous passages in 1 Corinthians 14 is when he's addressing in particular uh, messages in tongues and then the interpretation in, uh, of the message in tongues. And Paul says, two or at the most three messages and interpretations and then no more. And that was his way of not quenching the spirit, but setting in order some of the chaotic environment that had showed up in Corinth. And in this section, he does the same thing. He takes them back to the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 11, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. He's, he's going back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 12, Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Chapter 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Chapter 11, proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Chapter 12, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and members in particular. So you can see that the arguments that Paul's making in this letter are grounded in the gospel. This is not the Apostle Paul exercising his authority as an apostle and overreaching and saying, this is the thing, these are the things and that I think the way it needs to be, and it's just my personal preference, and that's the way it's going to be because I started the church, I founded the church in Corinth, and I'm, I'm the authority figure. He's going back to the cross, and he's using the cross as the grounds for the arguments that he's making to set things in order. The last section is uh, a section where there's doctrinal chaos that has showed up in the church, uh, theological chaos, and in particular, the details of that, and it's the whole chapter of chapter 15 that deals with it. It's one of the neatest chapters in the Bible. Um, I'm almost grateful that they had an issue with this topic because we get so much good stuff from the Apostle Paul uh, just because he has to respond to it. They were talking about how the resurrection had already... There was confusion about the, res the future resurrection of the dead. And, um, and I'll te I'm planning on teaching about that here in a few weeks when we get to that point. But he addresses the, the chaos that was going on by, again, going back to the cross. Chapter 15, verse 3, he says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Chapter 15, verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And really the whole paragraph, verse 12 through 19 in that chapter, really just before he launches into more, he really just establishes himself around the cross and says everything I'm about to, uh, to cl make claims about Everything that I'm about to straighten out 
actually goes back to the cross. And if, if the cross is incorrect, then what are we even doing? He says we have to line up to the cross. And so you'll see, this is the way Paul is in all of his letters. It's all the time. And when Paul is writing these letters to the churches, he's always going back. The gospel, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cross, the blood of Christ, the cross, the body of Christ. He's always going back because he never presumes to say, because I am who I am, this is the way it's going to be. He always goes back to the cross. He does it over and over and over again because it's the cross that carries the power of God. Amen? It's the cross that has, is the source of true authority because, like I said a moment ago, I didn't get on a cross. I didn't shed my blood. Any authority that any of us exercise, we need to be taking it from the cross. We need to be aligning ourselves with the message of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are there any questions, any comments? Okay, that's a good question. So, in this case, it appears that there were two sources of information at least. Um, the first is, he says, I believe in chapter 1, I've heard some reports from Chloe's people. I think that's chapter 1. You'd have to look at it. But he says, I've heard some reports from Chloe's people. And it's Chloe's people. There, there's a, apparently a church meeting in Chloe's house, a, a cell group, and they've sent word to Paul somehow that the church is splintering over these personality cults, that people have such a strong preference for Paul or Apollos or Peter or whomever that the church is starting to fracture. And so he found out through Chloe's people uh, some of that. Then later in the book, I think I want to say in chapter 8, reference to some kind of delegation of a couple people that come to Paul. There's another source of information. So Paul has kind of pulled his information. I imagine that Paul was a pretty connected individual by this time in his life. I imagine he had some sources of information, and um, it seems like he pulled sources of information together that the Lord made him aware of or sent his way, and he kind of formed a composite and wrote this one letter to try to address multiple things that were going on. There's people... I hesitate to bring it up. There's people that if you look, if you dig into it, they will say that there's no way that 1 Corinthians can be an authentic document, that it must be two or three separate things that some editor put together after the fact because it's just too... But I think if you take into consideration that Paul has multiple sources of information coming in and that once he has a few different topics to address... He writes a letter to start addressing all of it. I think it makes sense that this is actually an authentic letter from Paul and that it's not just a composite or a forgery put together later in Paul's name. There's just a lot packed into the letter because he has multiple sources of bed for all these issues. Corinth is a, it's a tough place. It's a tough place. I mean, I don't want to downplay the challenges we face in southeast Missouri, but imagine trying to plant a church in Philadelphia. Imagine trying to plant a church in Los Angeles. I have a friend that has planted a church in Los Angeles. He's been there for probably 10 years now. And there's just challenges there because there's just such a cultural pressure. It is a pressure cooker. It's ground zero. 
That's kind of what Corinth had going on. They, they, this was a hotbed for this kind of stuff. It's a good question. Any other questions, comments? There's a book that I want to recommend just as a, we'll pause for a second because I want to get into part of chapter one here in just a moment. There's a book I want to recommend by a man named J.T. Pugh. I do not lend out my copy. Um, <laughs> it's called The Wisdom and the Power of the Cross. It's hard to read the cover because it's kind of reflective. Uh, the Wisdom and the Power of the Cross, J.T. Pugh. J.T. Pugh was a pastor in Texas for years. Uh, he's a pioneer apostolic Pentecostal minister. Uh, he's passed on. He's no longer with us. But this is an excellent book, and it addresses the very topic that I want to get into in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the wisdom and power of the cross. It's available on Amazon in paperback for, I believe, $9.99. I think they have it on Kindle, and I think they have it in print as well. It's very good. I'd recommend it. It's one of those ones you have to read slowly, but it's not a hard read. There's just a lot there, and he's a good writer, and there's a lot of Bible and uh, it's very, very good. This is a couple, I want to share a couple quotes with you before I get into chapter one. J.T. Pugh in this book said, if the church is to be as effective as God intended it to be, the cross, the cross must be borne by committed, ordinary people like me and you. We have to take the pattern of the cross, the idea of the cross, the lifestyle of the cross, and we have to apply it onto our life. If the church is ever going to be everything God intended for it to be, that's why time and time again, Paul addresses these topics by going back to the cross because he knows these are things and the things we deal with today, whether it's collectively or individually, we must apply the cross to it. We have to go back to the blood of Jesus. We have to go back to the gospel. We have to be shaped by those things. And Brother Pew said, if the church is ever going to be everything God intended it for it to be, the cross has to be, we have to take up our cross, and it has to happen by another quote that I want to share with you, and I'm going to read this one again later. The cross has never been compatible to any culture. Its preaching has always established a counterculture. Jesus Christ is timeless. He is not the product of any human culture, and thus has never been enmeshed in any one culture. He both transforms and transcends the culture. So whatever culture Corinth had going on, whatever kind of wickedness, whatever, and it wasn't all wickedness, whatever just kind of stuff they had going on that was just uniquely them, it was superseded by the cross. Whatever things we have going on in Butler County and in Southeast Missouri, whether it's sinful stuff that's causing us to stray far from the plan of God, or whether it's just parts of who we are that's just uniquely us down here in Southeast Missouri, none of that supersedes the cross. The cross is our first identity. The cross is our first priority, and that's what Brother Pugh said. And I, I, I agree with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I want to read uh, a few of these scriptures, and then I want to comment on them, and I, I want to open it up for any questions or comments. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I'm going to read it in the New King James Version. It says this, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, 
that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Then he asks three rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that none of you except that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. So what we see here is a picture, and Paul is describing it on the basis of the report he'd gotten from Chloe's household people, that the church had started to divide over party lines. They'd formed a Paul party and a Peter party and a, and a uh, Jesus party and an Apollos party and probably other ones too. There was all kinds of splintering that was going on and they were breaking off into different little groups. Paul was the founder of the Corinthian church, so he held a lot of sway. After Paul had gotten there, there was a man named Apollos that showed up and he was a Alexandrian Jewish Christian. He was a good teacher. He was a learned person, and uh, he was influential. And he wasn't he wasn't undermining anything. He just he just kind of apparently gained a following. Uh, then there was Simon Peter, who he calls Cephas. Simon Peter's a, a a big personality in in the church. Whether you're in Corinth or any part of the world, Simon Peter is kind of a a household name. And then he says that there's some who are saying, "I'm of Christ," and some, some, people, some people think that there's actually people that were saying, I'm of Christ, and they're trying to one-up everyone because, you know, it's like, well, you say you're of Paul, but I say I'm of Jesus, you know. So, and, and there may have been people doing that. This may have been Paul being facetious, too, and kind of pointing out, like, you guys are just being ridiculous. Like, what, what's next? Someone going to say that I'm of Jesus, you know, because you guys are just trying to one-up each other. It's just, it's nonsense. And he's just pointing out, it's just kind of a ludicrous circumstance, and they're breaking up into cliques. Verse 17 in the message version says this. Uh, the, the, it's the sentence where Paul says, God didn't send me to baptize, but he sent me to preach the gospel. It's easy to misunderstand that. What's, what he's saying is, God didn't send me here to gain a following. He didn't send me here to build up my own little posse of people where I'm Mr. Popular and there's a cold personality around me. He said, I'm not writing this letter to say that you can't like Apollos and you can't like Simon Peter more than you like me. He's saying, I'm not trying to direct all the focus back at me. I'm trying to say, let's get back to the cross. That's what he's saying. He said, God didn't send me to Corinth to build up a personality cult around me. He sent me here to declare the gospel and start pulling you all out of the wicked ways that you've been living in. If you apply the cross to anything, it makes the situation better, doesn't it? It doesn't really matter what the topic is. It doesn't really matter what the issue is. It doesn't matter if it's clicks. It doesn't matter if it's a moral problem. It doesn't matter if it's a worship problem or a theological problem. It doesn't really matter what any of those things are. If you apply the cross to it, the situation improves, doesn't it? And that's what Paul is doing. Uh, I don't know what made people gravitate into these cliques, into these factions, may have been teaching styles, it may have been personality, it may have been um, some of them have more charisma than others, uh, but Paul insists that the power of the gospel 
doesn't lie in how eloquently he presents it. Paul didn't come, Paul was probably many people in those days that were educated like Paul was, were trained in rhetoric. It was part of their normal school training. And so it's very, very likely that Paul was a very skilled public speaker, like extremely skilled. But when he would go to Corinth and he would go to these places, he wouldn't lean in to uh, his perfectly constructed speeches and his ability to put together really crafty presentations that he was trained at, I'm sure, because many, most people back then that were uh, educated like he was and had this kind of training, that's not what he did. He didn't want to wow them with his eloquence. He wanted them to experience the anointing and the power of God. It doesn't mean that he was sloppy. It doesn't mean that he was disorganized or shooting from the hip all the time. But it just means he wasn't, he wasn't there to wow them with his, uh, with his oratory skills. And he said, that's not where the power of the gospel is. That's not where the power of the cross is. The power of the cross is not in how it's presented. The power of the cross is in the blood of Jesus. It's the substance of the message, not the style of the message. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. I want to read on, and then I want to pause for questions and comments. 1 Corinthians chapter, 18, uh, ver- chapter 1, verse 18 goes on. And he expounds on what he says in verse 17. In verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be of no effect. So there, he introduces the idea of the cross. And then in verse 18, in the passage to come, he starts to expound on it. Here's what he says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Then he launches off on a series of rhetorical questions again. So you can tell by the way Paul writes, he probably had that rhetoric skill because he's crafting an argument here. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I want to say again what I said a moment ago at the beginning. Being sucked into the world's way of thinking is always a problem for the church. We live in the world, but we're not supposed to be of the world, amen? But being sucked into the world's way of thinking and the world's way of perceiving things and the world's way of responding to the everyday things of life is a constant threat to the church. It's something we always have to be on guard on. The Corinthians had to guard against it. We have to guard against it. But luckily, the same resource that was available to them is available to us, the wisdom and power of the cross. The cross isn't outdated. The the cross hasn't expired. The cross hasn't become antiquated and outdated. The cross is still the answer for the troubles that we face today. 
the challenges that we face today, the challenges you face in your personal life, the answer is the cross. The challenges that we face as a church, the answer is the cross. The challenges that we face as a society, the answer is the cross. And it was that way back then, and it's that way today. And what stands on the other side is the wisdom of the world, the way of the world. It's always, it's ever-present. It's always there. It's always available uh, as something that is inviting us in to do things the world's way instead of God's way. And it's very easy to latch on to. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have ever had to write the letter of 1 Corinthians. This type, the world's way of thinking had infected the church on a number of different fronts. And Paul had to recenter them on the cross. And I think it's really neat that that's what unifies the entire letter, is Paul constantly going back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Does anyone have a question or a comment? I want to talk about verse 18 through 25 in a moment, but I do want to pause. Brother Hewling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Correct. Right. 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 Well, and and you know, Lord willing, it's it's any community's dream to get to the point where there's so many that are being born again into the kingdom that whoever's in leadership isn't the only one doing the baptizing. There's nothing in Scripture that says that, that you have to be ordained into the ministry in order to baptize. Uh, and that's certainly what was going on in Corinth. There was such an explosive season of growth that they experienced that Paul only baptized a couple people. But I, Brother Hewling's absolutely correct. That wasn't him backing off of the message of that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. It was just a simple fact of logistics and that there were there was ministry happening all around the city. Yeah, I, I don't know why he did it in that particular order. It may have been a family that maybe they were baptizing family members or something. But yeah, I mean, of course, 
I love to baptize people, Brother Walker, you baptize. I, I mean, there's nothing that, hardly anything that brings you more joy than getting to be right there in the middle of all that. It's, it's a miracle in the making. It's happening right there. Uh, but, you know, far be it from us to create a bottleneck and to, you know, to, to put a lid on the kind of move of God that can happen. Uh, it doesn't mean we all have to just be freewheeling and do our own thing and, and, and all kinds of, we don't want to ever get into a situation where there's chaos, uh, but Brother Hewling's absolutely right, and Brother Deaver brought up a good story of, of, of that in action. So, anyone else? It's a good practice to, I mean, it's, I try to do that whenever, uh, whenever we baptize here at the church. Uh, I, I reel someone through the tank, and uh, I, I don't think they have to pass a written test or anything like that, uh, but there, there has to be a demonstrated understanding of what's going on. There also has to be repentance. There also has to be true, genuine repentance, and again, uh, I, I don't know that there's a, a a litmus test for that, but there has to be observed and demonstrated repentance, because if there's no repentance, I mean, you can receive the Holy Ghost before you are baptized, but you, to be baptized before you truly repent, you're just, you're just getting wet, because at the end of the day, and I don't want this to, I don't for a second want you to come away believing that I don't think that there's something important that happens up there in that water, but it's just water. The most powerful thing that happens happens in our heart. When the Word of God and the Spirit of God, God convicts our heart and brings us to a place of repentance, and God starts to do the heart work. Now, you know me well enough to know that I believe that baptism is more than just a public affirmation of faith. I believe there's something supernatural and powerful that happens when we call the name of Jesus over somebody in baptism and that the blood of Jesus is applied. I, I believe all of that. But if, if, if there's not demonstrated repentance and an understanding of what repentance and baptism is all about, then we're getting the cart before the horse. So it's important. And we're doing, and we're doing somebody a disservice, honestly, because you can create confusion like that. And, you, and people get to the point where they, they wonder about their salvation. So uh, you don't really do anyone a service. These, these are good questions. I want to just, I want to highlight that in this passage that we just read, verse 18 through 25, I'm going to admit to you, this is a dense passage. There's a lot, there's a lot going on. But the way to understand it is to understand that there's two ways. There's the world's way and there's the word of the cross, God's way. And these are the two things that Paul is, is pointing out here in this passage, the world has their own way of thinking. And to the world's way of thinking, when the world sees the cross, when the world sees the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it's foolishness to them. It's foolishness to them. Read all the myths. Read all the, the myths and the ways that man has tried to conjure up their own deities and their own religious systems. It, it, it never involves the creator king suffering and dying on behalf of his creation. It's foolishness. It would, never even, it would never even cross their mind to think up a story like the cross. And so it's foolishness to the world, but it is the power 
of God. It is the strength of God. And you'll notice in verse 18, there's a, there's a couple words that I want to point out. It says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Being saved, that's the present participle. It's not past tense, it's present tense, our being. It's, it's, it's right now, it's right now, but it's also going forward, our being. And that's what salvation is. Now, in a real sense, we can talk about salvation in the past tense when we talk about, I remember when I first repented of my sins, and I remember when I was first baptized, and when I was baptized in the name of Jesus. I remember the first time I spoke in tongues, and there was evidence that God had filled me with the gift of his spirit. And we can point back to that in the past tense, and that's completely okay. That's, that's permissible. You can use the past tense of that. But we also have to learn to use the present participle tense, the, the present tense ongoing, that I am being saved. There is a present work that God is doing in my life that didn't stop when I was first filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, but it's ongoing all the time. And that's what Paul addresses here. Paul is addressing the chaos. We all have a little bit of chaos in our life. It might be doctrinal chaos. It might be moral chaos. It might be uh, any, just things that are out of alignment. None of us are batting a thousand. And every time we come up on something that the Word of God reveals to us or the Spirit of God reveals to us is going on in our life that we need to bring into alignment, we have to think of it in terms of, you know what? There's still a work that's going on in me. I'm being saved. It's not just a past tense thing, but it's an active operation of God's spirit that's working on me and causing me to become what he needs me to be. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul quotes from the Old Testament at least 14 times. And I'll leave it to you if you want to read through there and start picking them out. There's at least 14 quotations from the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians, and one of them is right here in this passage, in verse 19. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. That's Isaiah chapter 29. And what happens in Isaiah chapter 29 is a picture of what Paul is describing. The way of the world, the wisdom of the world, wants to save itself. We want to manufacture something on our own that can lead to our own salvation, don't we? It's just another way of saying we want to be God. We want to be our own God. We want to be our own Savior. It's part of our fallen condition as sinful people. We crave to sort this all out on our own because there's something our flesh doesn't like about being subject to our Creator. Our flesh kicks back against that. And that's the way of the world. That's the wisdom of the world. That's what happens in Isaiah chapter 29. There's a story in Israel's history, and Israel is in trouble, and they're not very strong as a nation, and they're feeling pretty threatened by, oh, which country is it? They're feeling threatened by Assyria. And so because Assyria is looking pretty big and tough to them, Israel decides, we're going to make an alliance with Egypt. And if we'll make an alliance with Egypt... We're going to look tougher, and Assyria will leave us alone. That's 
that's their idea to save themselves. Not, hey, let's call out on the name of the Lord and see what God would have us do. Let's go make an alliance with Egypt. And let's sort out some kind of maneuver that we can become kind of our, the answer to our, our own answer to our problem. What happens? That's the way of the world. That's the world's wisdom. What happens? In Isaiah's day, what happens is Assyria picks up on it, and they said, oh, you guys are trying to toughen up. We'll just invade early before you guys can beef up your military and get this alliance sorted out. We heard that you're dealing with the Egyptians. We're just going to invade a couple of months early. And they get tore up, and they get taken into captivity, and, and it's, it's a bad state of affairs. But that's God. God had to take the chaos that was going on in Israel, and he was going to have to address it somehow, and God had a way of addressing it. It just wasn't the way that they wanted it to be addressed. And God has a way of addressing the chaos in our lives, and it's very obvious what it is. We've talked about it already. It's the cross. The cross is God's way of addressing the troubles in our life, the sin in our life, the chaos in our world. But nobody wants to hear it. We all want to make an alliance with Egypt. That's our first inclination. And Paul's message to them is the same message that Isaiah had back in the Old Testament. That's why he quotes him here, that we better do things God's way, and we better go back to the word of the cross. Paul asks those four rhetorical questions. He really drives the point home. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God takes the things that they were trying to do in Israel's day in Isaiah, and he turns it on its head. No one's going to stand in the way of God's plan. No one's going to stand in the way of, of the cross and, and the plan that God's doing in the world today. You might as well just get on board with it. Because the scriptures say, and that's the point Paul's making, he said, the world is looking for other things. The world is looking for their own way and their own wisdom. And God is making it look foolish because God always wins. Any questions? All right, I want to briefly cover a couple more of these verses before we go tonight. Verse 21 for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. There's a connection to those who are being saved and those who believe. Those who are being saved are also counted among those who are still believing. Present tense. It takes a present tense faith to be saved, not just a past tense experience. Amen? When Paul says preaching, he's not just talking about the form of communication, even though I can tell you as a preacher there are times I feel foolish. That was a joke. He's not so much talking about the style as he is the content. He's talking about, you know what, it's kind of silly to stand up and talk about when you really try to sort it out with your own human reckoning that one man can be the sacrifice for the sin of the whole world. You know, there's... there's it just confounds our human worldly way of thinking. And because of that, it, it seems like foolishness at times. That, that, this is, that this really is the message. This is the message that saves the world. But God said, I've ordained it through, through the foolishness of the message preached of the cross to save the world. That's his plan. 
That's his plan. And it says in verse 21 that the world, through its wisdom, didn't know God. All of the ways that the world has devised of saving itself have never led it to God. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Everybody knows about God. Romans chapter 1. Nature itself testifies. Everybody knows about God. But not everybody knows God. The world's way, the world's way may help you get to a knowledge about God. But the world's way is not going to help you know God. There's only one way. Jesus says, I am the door. The only way to know God is the word of the cross. You can't go around Jesus. You can't. You can't miss the cross. You can't go around the message of the cross just because it's unappealing to us in our human sensibilities. We, we can't empty the cross of its power like that. There is no other way to be saved. Knowing God is not just about knowing about God. It's about knowing him on a personal level. Verse 22 says, the Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. This is, this is the way we're wired up. The Jews seek, seek after a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Paul had been to Athens in, in, in Acts chapter 17. He'd interacted with some of the pagan Greeks, and they were seeking signs. They were seeking uh, wonders. They were seeking new ideas. And we're all, the, the way of the world is always looking for a new thing and a flashier thing and a new message and a new plan. Why do you think that when election season, he, it's always election season now. Why do you think when election season really heats up, everybody gets whipped up into a frenzy because every, all the candidates are presenting their plans and their policies and their initiatives because everybody thinks that this guy's got the one thing or this lady's got the thing that's going to save us and it's going to sort everything out and make it all right because there's this deep hunger. We really want that to be true. The whole world really wants, the whole world knows that it's broken. The Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. The Jews stumbled over it. The Jews just couldn't accept it, and the Greeks counted it as foolishness and said, we aren't even going to hear that message. There's no way that that can be the message. There's no way that that can. We need a policy initiative. <laughs> we need to have another election cycle. There's no way the cross can possibly be the answer. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The point of that is not to say that God is foolish or God is weak, but the point of that is to say that what God is and what God does can't be compared to what humans do or might devise. These are not opposite sides of the same coin. These are not equal options. This, the word of the cross, is so far superior to the world's way that it's not even a close contest. 
Paul addressed the question of how something that seems absurd in the world's eyes, a crucified Christ, could ever be regarded. And he starts looking at the chaos going on in the Corinthian church and the disunity that's showing up and how they're splintering off into different groups. And he shows that the world can be divided not into groups based on personality, but the world really is only divided up into two groups. It's not Paul's people and Apollos' people and Peter's people. The world is really drawn up into two groups. Those that are living according to the wisdom of the world, the world's way, and those that have said, I'm going to follow the way of the cross. A couple things that I want to apply before we pray and dismiss tonight. The cross is countercultural. There's something about the church, no matter where the church exists in the world, that makes the church stand out. Because there's not a human culture in the world that stumbles into the message of the cross. Something about this message of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes the church stand out no matter where we are in the entire world. Being sucked into the world's way of thinking is always a problem for the church in every age and in every culture. Brother Pugh said in this book, I want to recommend it again, The Wisdom and the Power of the Cross, Any Culture. So if you're sitting in the sound of my voice tonight, I'll give you an application point. If you're feeling the tension of what it is to live as a person of God and you're feeling like the world is pulling at you, that is completely normal and you are not alone because this message is not compatible. You can't have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. It simply cannot work. It can't work. But the pew says it's never been compatible. And when we preach the cross and we talk about the blood of Jesus, and we talk about his death, burial, and resurrection, it always creates a counterculture. It always produces tension. It always produces conviction about the things that we're involved in presently, maybe the things that you used to be involved in and you pulled away from. It creates a tension. It creates conviction about those things because Jesus isn't contained just to the first century in Corinth. He's timeless. He transcends culture. He transcends time. The issues that they faced back then, we may call them by a different name today. They may look a little different today, but the answer is still the same. The answer is the cross, and the answer is Jesus. The cross is our touchstone. Every single difficulty, every sticky situation, every trial, every season, every cultural environment that the world projects. It doesn't matter if we live in southeast Missouri, if we live in New York City, if we live in Saudi Arabia, if we live in some other point on the globe. The cross is what cuts across everything and recenters us as people of God. And I want to say one more thing. You can take it to the bank that the cross is still a stumbling block. The message of the cross, the word of the cross that Paul talks about throughout the entire book of 1 Corinthians, but he really opens up 
the whole can of worms here in chapter 1 in the passage we've explored together. It is every bit the stumbling block today that it was back then. I know we may not have a strong Jewish community that we're talking about Jesus being the Messiah and they're kind of repelled away by that the way it was in the first century because there was different dynamics at play and it was a stumbling block to the Jews. But I'm here to tell you that even though those circumstances may not be exactly the same as they were back then, the cross is every bit the stumbling block for people in our age today as it was back then. It, happened, it's, it manifests itself today in a couple different ways. The first way it manifests itself is in evangelism. And you better believe that when you start talking about the blood of Jesus and you start talking about the cross of Jesus Christ and then you take it to the logical next step and you say, because of the blood of Jesus and because he sacrificed himself for us, I don't belong to myself and I belong to him. And you start talking about the word of the cross and doing it God's way you'd better believe that that's going to present a stumbling block to people that you're trying to witness to. And you don't need to be shocked or surprised. or It may grieve you. It should grieve you. And you should pray about it. And you should pray that they gain a revelation that this is the only saving message. But brothers and sisters, don't be surprised for a moment because it is a stumbling block. And it isn't just a stumbling block to those that need to be evangelized and hear the message for the first time. But it's a stumbling block to us. It's a stumbling block to the saints because even the established saints of God that maybe have been born again of the water and of the spirit, when we set for long enough and we live for God for long enough, we do start to get comfortable. And as soon as there's a preacher that comes through that starts talking about the power of the cross and how the cross takes over your whole life and how the cross demands everything, there's something in our flesh that's still alive that kicks against that. And if we're not careful, it can be a stumbling block to us too. That's why for every trial and every season, we need to recenter our life on the cross. The cross gives crisp focus to life's issues, no matter what they are. God doesn't work in the realm of man's independence. God isn't interested in, in the self-made person. God doesn't work in people's lives that are dead set on being independent no matter what the cost. God works in the realm of man's helplessness when we say, God, I'm completely dependent on you. I can't figure out a way to do it the world's way. I'm gonna have to do it the way of the cross. That's where God starts to operate. I wanna read one more passage of scripture. It's the very next section in 1 Corinthians chapter one, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of no noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
There's one phrase in that paragraph that leapt off the page to me just this afternoon, and it's because of him. Because of him. Stand with me if you would. I want to end on this note. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. And if you need a point of transition and a crossroad moment in your life, look for no other place than the cross. Get back to the foot of the cross. If you're sorting out some heavy things in your world, if you're at a point of decision and you don't know which way to turn, if you're in even maybe a crisis of faith and you're not sure what to believe anymore, make your way back to the foot of the cross. Read 1 Corinthians. See how Paul navigated some of the very real issues, some of the very real issues that you may face, and get back to the foot of the cross. Let's pray right now. Would you pray with me and lift up your voice in the name of Jesus? Lord, I pray a blessing over this assembly, over this group that's gathered here in the sanctuary on this Wednesday evening. Lord, it's all because of you, Jesus. Lord, the plan of salvation is not our plan of salvation. It's your plan of salvation. Lord, the cross isn't your, our cross. It's your cross. Lord, it isn't our redemption, it's your redemption, it's your sanctification, it's your righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags and our answers for the things that trouble our society, our world, even our personal lives, God, our answers for those things are completely inadequate. And Lord, I pray that across this room right now, there would just be a recentering that happens on the cross. Lord, I want brothers and sisters right now that are maybe troubled in their faith, troubled in their world, circumstances and issues are arising all around them. Lord, I give them a word of hope today from the word of God that they can go back to the foot of the cross. They can recalibrate their life. Lord, I pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus and I speak it in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to dismiss you tonight. I want you to think about this. What are some things going on in our world today? Maybe your world, maybe our region, maybe our nation. What are some issues that are like the ones that the Apostle Paul was dealing with in 1 Corinthians that we need to apply the cross to? What would those things be? Just something to think about, something to meditate on, because it's the real work of what we need to do. We need to apply the cross to everything in our life. Amen? Amen. You're dismissed in Jesus' name. Thank you for being here tonight. Greet two or three people and uh, tell them how glad you were to see them this evening. And we'll see you on Sunday, Lord willing.